chains were fastened tight Down at the jail that night Still Paul and Silas would not be dismayed They said it's time to lift our voice Sing praises to the Lord Let's prove that we will trust Him Come what may, God wants to hear you sing when the waves are crashing round you, when the fiery darts surround you, when despair is all you see. God wants to hear your voice when the wisest man has spoken. Says your circumstances as hopeless as can be. That's when God wants to hear you sing. He loves to hear our praise. On our cheerful days When the pleasant times Outweigh the bad by far But when suffering comes along And we still sing Him songs That is when we bless The Father's heart God wants to hear you fiery darts surround you, when despair is all you see, God wants to hear your voice, when the wisest man has spoken, and says your circumstances as hopeless as can be, that's when God wants to hear you sing. Despair is all you see. God wants to hear your voice. 
Well, that's a beautiful song, isn't it? Thank you all so much. God is on our side. In the book of Proverbs this morning, chapter number 29. Proverbs chapter 29. And the subject is vision revisited. And I'll get to the book of Romans tonight. New chapter, chapter 5. And I hope that you'll come back to hear that. Chapter 5 talks about why God allows trouble and problems in our life and what he does through those problems. And uh, that affects everybody. So if you haven't had them yet, you will have them. And uh, you're either just over a problem, in a problem, or getting ready to have a problem. And tonight, Romans chapter 5 is the great encouraging passage that deals with that as well as the security of our faith our eternal security, and a great passage on that as well. So I hope you'll be with us. Now this morning, vision revisited, and we're in Proverbs chapter 29 today. I'm only going to read one verse. Typically, I have you stand. I won't today. It'll be pretty quick, okay? So verse 18, Proverbs 29 and 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And where there is no vision, the people perish. The word vision here refers to the word of God that's spoken by the prophets. God would give them visions. They would come and speak and describe that vision to the people in the days before the Bible had been fully written. And for example, if you were to look at the very first phrase of the book of Isaiah, chapter number 1 and verse number 1, the old prophet Isaiah says words like this, the vision of Isaiah the prophet. He begins by saying, this is my vision, the vision of the prophet Isaiah. But because the prophets always talked about the future, then vision also came to be known as someone's view of the future. And so today, we would say in our culture, the way we use the word, that vision is a dream of things that have not yet occurred, but we hope they will occur. We're working and spending our life to make those things, in fact, occur. So vision is a dream of a better future. And if we say he or she is a person of vision, we mean that person looks to the future and they're attempting to make it a preferable future, better than it is for themselves, for their family, for their company, or whatever it may be. That's a person with vision. And often I ask myself, how's your vision, Bill? Where are you in your vision process? Because the Bible is very clear here. Where there is no vision... Bad things happen. Nothing gets done. People drift away from their original purpose. If you have a marginal Bible, or you have, uh, if you'll read this verse in a marginal Bible, the marginal reading is this, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. The people cast off restraint. And is that telling us two different things? No, they're really the same. 
because what it means when people lose their vision of a better future, then they go in all kinds of directions. They begin to, there begins to be disunity and people do their own thing rather than being drawn, than being drawn under the power of the vision that everybody could hold in unity. So vision is a dream or the ability to see a better future. Now, that's a good definition. You might want to write that down somewhere because a lot of times people have a hard time seeing a better future depending on the circumstances that they're going through. Moses was a man of vision. His vision was of freedom for his people. His people, the Hebrew people, had been in captivity for over 400 years when Moses came along. And Moses dreamed of a better future for them in the promised land that God had given to the Hebrews. They had never possessed it yet. So it was all about where they were going in the future. And he dreamed of them going there and having freedom from bondage, being released from their slave makers or their, their slave, their taskmasters down in Egypt. Nehemiah was a man of great vision that the Bible talks about. You study the book of Nehemiah, you can't help but be impressed with his vision. His vision, he went and saw the city of Jerusalem, and the walls were all broken down, and all the buildings had been destroyed in the invasion by the Babylonians. And he looked at the, at the city one night, and the Bible says he wept. His heart was broken because he loved his hometown, if you will. He loved his city. And he dreamed of those walls being built back up and protection for the people. And he dreamed of the time that the temple would stand again and all the prominent buildings and the palace of the king. And so Nehemiah's vision was of rebuilding Jerusalem after the Babylonians had destroyed it. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech says about as well as anybody could ever have said it what vision is. He said, I envision a time when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Well, that's a vision of a better future from where he stood at that time, when people of all colors and races would have the same freedom and have the same rights in the country. Where does vision come from? How do people get a vision? You're sitting there today, you might be asking yourself, so how do I get a vision of a preferable future? Well, first of all, our vision, and this is really the point of my message today, our vision always reflects our values. Now, I'm using some terms, and I don't want you to confuse them, and I don't want to, over, I don't want to make it too technical. But I can tell you, if you have a vision, it's based upon your values. What is a value? Values are the things that we consider to be important. Stephen Covey defines values as the things that matter most. What matters most to you in your life? That's what you dream about for a better future. And so you dream of an education if you're a young person, knowing that if you get a good education, you have a pretty good shot at a better future than perhaps you would have had otherwise. And some of you are sitting here, single people looking across the room, and your dream of a preferable future would be 
that attractive young man or woman is sitting 10 rows away that you have your eye on or something like that. Preferable future. Get to know them real good before you'll know whether it's preferable or not too, by the way. And so vision, what we envision for a preferable future is based upon what is most important to us, our values, if you will. Moses, for example, valued freedom for the Hebrew people. And therefore, his vision was shaped around leading those people to freedom. And and boy, he did. 40 years in the desert and crossing the sea and all that you know about the story of Moses, all of it reflected what he valued in life. Nehemiah valued his home. He was a patriot. He loved his country and his home. And so he rebuilt and he restored Jerusalem. Jesus Christ even could, you could say, and it's a little bit maybe iffy, but I want to couch it in the right terminology. But you could say that the Lord Jesus Christ even was a person of vision. And he looked down from heaven and he saw mankind perishing in his sin. And because he loved us, he came and went to the cross and he purchased our justification, our salvation, born out of a value that he loved and was concerned about and had compassion on a perishing humanity. The verse tells me that vision is vital. Where there is no vision, the people perish. They cast off their restraint. They forget why they're there, and they go in all kinds of directions. Most of the experts in the field of leadership training say in their books or their tapes or whatever in their speeches that vision is the single most critical factor for a leader. If a leader doesn't have a picture in his or her mind of where they attempt to go and how to get there, then they can't lead anybody else there. Leadership always is a vital, vital part of vision. And one other thing I've learned through the years, and that is that vision leaks, we say. What do I mean it leaks? You can preach on vision for six weeks and get everybody all very visionary and dreaming and so on, and before long, they're, uh, they're going. They've forgotten it. I have forgotten it. Vision leaks. It's like the air seeping out of a tire. And so we have to constantly go back and be reminded of our vision. And when people don't have a vision, sure sign of it. As a pastor, here's what I watch for. When I see people out here greeting before the service and they're doing it very mechanically and without much energy and a smile, or when I see somebody teaching a Sunday school class, but they're acting like it's a duty instead of a joy and a pleasure, or when I look up here and see somebody singing in the choir and I said, oh, I wish they weren't. I can't hear them, but they obviously are not putting themselves into it. There's no gusto there. Or when I look at a congregation singing, or we, we announce a congregational song, and there's nobody singing much. It's sort of ho-hum, and everybody's looking around. Then I say, you know what? We need to reinflate the vision tire here. Because when people lose vision, they become mechanical. They go through the motions. And I don't want to go to a church. I don't want to pastor a church where the people are going through the motions. Do you? I want people to have a heart in it. 
And so when they have a heart in it, they have to conjure up that vision. They have to get that vision back up. The vision meter is running low when people are operating mechanically. And so without it, we lose our enthusiasm. But when we remember, this is what we're really doing. This is the dream. This is the vision. We're going to do something that'll make a better future for everybody here. When we can do that, then enthusiasm comes back and people unify and people get focused and people do what they're doing because it means something to them. They're just not going through the motions of life. Number one today, I want to show you how the Florence Baptist Temple vision has been built on values. This is something I've been studying and it's really stirred my heart, so I hope it will stir yours. How the Florence Baptist Temple has had a vision now for 46 years and how that vision is connected to what we believe most deeply here, our values, if you will. I'll tell you when this began to come into my mind and heart is last week, uh, we've been doing some work on our parking lots. I don't know if anybody's noticed, nobody's said anything to me, which means you can make major improvements. And when nobody says anything to you, you better preach on vision the next week. Right? So have you noticed there's several acres of parking lots that have been covered with stuff that we've spent about 40 grand on so far? Have you noticed that? Is that worth a holy hallelujah every now and then? And they have all brand new white lines on them, so you will now know where to park and the white line doesn't go in the middle of your car. Everybody understand that? So it's a parking lot. It's a little thing. It ain't a big deal at all. But it's, 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 it's another one of those little notches on the road of progress, is it not? And so last week I drove around the, the, the building, as I often do. I'm trying to catch the deacon smoking is really what I'm trying to do. <laughs> and I didn't see any last week, but I had my smoke detector on, you know, out there. And other things they do that's worse, so... I'm just picking that. I'm having a little fun at their expense today. But seriously, I'm driving around sitting in the parking lot. And I remember when we built that parking lot 24 years ago almost now. And man, I looked out there and those bulldozers were moving that earth and tamping it down. And I remember when they put that black top down and they striped it for the very first time. And Dedication Sunday came here, and Carol Campbell, the governor of the state, came over. And I'd been worried and obsessing that we had overbuilt this building. Because right before we moved in, a preacher came over here from Florida and stopped in and said, Bill, I want to see the new building y'all building here. And he walked around in here for a few minutes. He said, man, you've built a coliseum here. You'll never fill this thing up. A man of great faith from Florida. And, and after he said that, I put a negative in my brain. I thought, maybe he knows something I don't know. And the first Sunday, we packed it out. Had chairs around the wall. Very first Sunday on when we dedicated it. And I remember standing on that parking lot, and all these cars are driving up. People are coming out of the cars and walking up there. A man, a woman, a little boy, a little girl, teenagers, they have their Bibles in their hand. They're smiling. They're greeting people. And I thought, praise God, that's why we came to Florence. That's why we have our church here. All these people coming up to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as I sat out there last week, driving around looking at the progress of the work on the parking lot, I saw again the same thing. The building or the lot filling up with cars, all kinds. Brand new Mercedes, 1957 Ford, held together with bubble gum and tape, baling wire, and all kinds of people, old and young and rich and poor and all of them people that came here to worship God. Our church has always had that vision of building a great church and reaching people and making disciples out of those people. A church where everybody is welcome, where the well-off and the poor, the successful and the broken, the hurting, the confused, no matter who you are, you can find acceptance and hope and guidance and encouragement just by walking in these doors. When that choir sung this morning and they hit that drum and that orchestra swelled out there, wasn't that that just encouraging to be in a place like that this morning? Did you notice that? Just the praise of God going up. And we always want it to be that. The highest value we've had here at this church since the beginning has been the Word of God, the Bible. I probably rarely go a Sunday and not comment on, well, the Bible is the infallible and inerrant Word of God. You can believe the Bible. You can trust the Bible. Because we believe that the Word of God has the answers. I'll tell you how relevant this book is. Today, if you went to Sunday school, the lesson from the book of Genesis was on dinosaurs. And you know what? Christians don't know how to teach their kids about the dinosaurs. Kid goes to school and in the seventh grade and comes home, hey, mom, daddy, what about the dinosaurs? Does the Bible mention dinosaurs? And if you don't know your Bible, you don't have an answer for them. But if you know your Bible, you found out today where to place the dinosaurs. It's right in God's Word. The Bible has all the answers. And because it's our highest value, we honor it. This is a church built around teaching and preaching the Word of God. We're not a church built around secondary things. Above everything, that's preeminent. If you come here, you're going to hear the Word taught and or preached and or both. Because that's God's way. It is by the foolishness of preaching that men come to know Christ, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We not only value the Word of God here, we value the gospel. And we have experienced the transforming power of the gospel in our lives, how God uses the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to change people who put their confidence and their trust in that. There's a strong connection between our vision, where we want to go in the future, and what our values are today. And so through the years, we valued family. We've always believed here at this church that family is central to God's plan. We dreamed of a church that would minister to the entire family, and that's why we have these programs. All these programs we have here, not just to keep people busy, 
It's because you need different program for the little child than you do for the senior saint. You need programs for the youth and you need programs for every facet of people's lives. We believe in ministering to the whole person that God made man in his image and he made him physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And therefore, we must minister to him and we must minister to him at every stage of life. We're the only institution in town, the church of the Lord Jesus, that attempts to minister to people at every stage of life. The only, only other institution in Florence that is interested in people from the cradle roll until they die is the hospital. The hospital ministers to everybody. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ ministers to everybody. So we have ministry for the entire family at our church. We value children. And from almost day one, we've had a dream of ministering and training and educating children in the faith. And so two or three years after the church started, we opened the Florence Christian School. And then, as you saw this morning, children's ministry is a big part. While you and I sit here over in the gym right now, Bible Zone has several hundred children being trained and taught by good people from the church here, learning in all kinds of creative ways because we value children. And the children, the value of children is the reason that motivated us to have a thorough children's ministry. You can't bring your child here and your child not learn the Bible and learn about Jesus. You can't bring them here and really get them involved, as you could see this morning. That was just our sixth grade class, and that's just the ones who memorized, I don't know how many Bible verses this year to earn that Bible, but a whole bunch of Scripture. In fact, those kids can probably quote by memory more Scripture verses right now than the average adult member of this church ever has known. And that's because we value our children, and that has led to the vision of a children's ministry. We value our children, so we started a sports ministry because, again, we minister to the whole person, not just spiritually. We are interested in people spiritually. Seek first the kingdom. That's number one. But we're also interested in ministering to people physically. We're interested in ministering to people emotionally in every area of their life that the Christian faith is applied in an intelligent and sensible way to their life. We value our youth. And so because we value youth, Chris puts a special emphasis on teaching these 7th grade through 12th graders in a way that would give them a biblical worldview, that they will learn how to interpret the world in a scriptural and biblical manner, because if we don't do that, we are going to lose them, parents. In the world that we're in today, there is great hostility to our faith. And so we're trying to train our young people that they can defend them, their, their ideas and their faith. It's, our youth ministry is different from a lot of churches. We're not just entertaining kids. We're not just showing them videos and movies and and, and, and having a, a rock concert every time we get together. No, we are doing everything we can to get them to think the way that Christians have always thought through the centuries. Next Sunday afternoon, they will leave and go to Ohio. And uh, it'll cost us 
12, $14,000 to put them on buses and send them all the way up to Ohio where they will minister in a church of about 1,000 uh, attendants where uh, Kelly McInerney is the pastor and in a little small town up there. And during the day, they're going to go out and knock on doors and they're going to go and have Bible clubs. Why do we do that? Why do we spend all that money? Is it just to help that church? No, it's to train our young people and when they go through that experience, it makes an impact in their lives, I can promise you, without exception. We value service to God here at this church, and that's given us a vision of sending out people. Do you know, as you sit here this morning, over 100 people have left this church to go into career work as pastors around the country, pastoral staff members, Christian school teachers and missionaries. Currently, three of our families are ministering in East Asia. One of our families is in Australia. One of our families that sat right here, Lamar Sally and his family, are in Costa Rica. Mark Buxton and his wife are in the Philippines. Larry Allred and his wife are in Mexico. Mike Pepper is in Africa. Mike came and said, would you be my sending church? Because he didn't have one. He's from the Philadelphia area. And he was a pastor friend of mine. And at 70 years of age, he packed up everything he had and went to Africa because he dreamed of a better future for people in Sierra Leone. He found out there, were hardly anybody, there was hardly anybody in Sierra Leone planting churches. The poorest country outside of Haiti in the Western Hemisphere. And Mike went there. And this week, Mike called me on the phone and he said, Bill, I have some good news. We had our 10th anniversary and we had almost 600 people gather in our 17 little churches that we've planted over there. We now have like 20 young men in Bible Institute studying the Bible to preach the Word of God. And it's all because a man's value was he cared about the people of that African nation and he packed up and he went over there and he made that vision come to a reality based upon his values, based upon his values. Through the years, we always felt the need to have large, clean, functional facilities here. Because again, we wanted to minister to the whole man. We wanted enough room where all our people could worship. But we also wanted enough room that we could educate our children. And two weeks ago, I sat here on the platform and listened to our principal, Mr. Barry, tell a great crowd of people who had gathered here for graduation, almost as many people as are here this morning. Big crowd, all billing well filled. And Jim announced to that crowd of people, tonight we will give out our 1,200th diploma from Florence Christian School. And see, it all began with a dream of a better future that we will be educating young people in the Christian faith in a Christ-centered atmosphere because we valued our young people, and it took those facilities to do it. Most recently, we built those recreation facilities out there. And the reason we did is because physically, 
we wanted to have an opportunity to minister to people, which we were doing as recent as yesterday morning. We've always valued excellence here. I, I grew up in some small churches, nothing wrong with small churches. But I got so weird when I became, when I, I entered the ministry and, and God led me here to plant this church, I said, the day I can't give it everything I've got, I'll get out of it. Because I've spent my life watching people serve God half-heartedly, unenthusiastically, with spare time and pocket change, giving God the leftovers, and making you think that they were doing God a favor to give him 15 minutes a week. And I said, never, never on my watch. We will have excellence. We'll give God the best that we have, or we won't give him anything. Because I believe God gets turned off when people give him some sort of half-hearted service, don't you? I tell you, don't give me half a pie. You give me a good pie and give me the whole pie, or don't bring me some piece of it from three days ago at the reunion. And I'm afraid we give God a lot of old three-day-old pie that we got brought drug in from the reunion and want God to accept it. We don't have rummage sales here because we don't even want you junk on the property for a minute. We give God our best here. If we are not willing to raise the money and pay for it, don't do it. Amen? That's the vision. Give God your best. Give God your best. And above all, we dreamed of a church. We dreamed of a church that would be a, how do I say it? It'd make a great impact, a difference in the lives of people. There would be a true lighthouse. It would be a, a beacon of hope in a world of not a lot of hope sometimes. A vision based on values. What we valued and what mattered most would be reflected in what we would do. And America has now changed while the church has been here. It's really, really changed. Another thing that led me to preach this and God laid on my heart, I believe, is I read a book by a man named George Barna. He's a sharp guy. He's a graduate of Harvard and Dallas Baptist University. He's been doing polling in the Christian community for the last 20, 25 years. Here's what, and he wrote a new book. It's called U-Turn. It's a couple years old now, U-Turn. And George Barna, all that I'm saying now is based upon his polling data. He went out and surveyed, I think, 1,500 people in different walks of life across America. And here's what he discovered. Listen, the great change you see in America since the mid-90s is a change in values. We talk about it in other areas, but at the heart of all that's happened in America in the last 20 or more years is that people's values are changing. Polling indicates that today's core values are less about other people and that the values the average American has are far more self-centered than they were in past generations. Barna says that over 60% of the values today are connected to pleasure-seeking activity, that 
the most important value in people's life is let's have a good time. The most important value for the younger generation of our day, and I don't want to pick on you, but is a hedonistic lifestyle. It's how does that affect me? Barna says, he, ta- he describes how American values are changing. First, he says, in the area of work. We used to call it the old-fashioned Protestant work ethic. We believe, and based upon the Bible, that work was ordained of God. I personally believe that with all my heart. That's why I, I'm, I'm a worker. I work. I believe that God gave man the command to work before they ever fell into sin. Work was not a punishment. It later became a form of that in, one, in some senses. But work is the purpose that God gave us in life. And as we work for the glory of God, we honor God. It's honorable to work. It's dishonorable not to work if you should be working and can work. Today, work, though, is simply a means to an end. Its only purpose is economic. Make as much as you have to have to live. And in the entitlement society of today, the idea of working to glorify God and to be honorable is slipping. In the area of family, the Bible teaches us that family is the primary source of fulfillment in life, that the deepest fulfillment that you and I ever have in life is our family, our marriage, our children, our home. Today, we have redefined family in America. Instead of family being based upon marriage or biology, family today is being based upon relationship. And those relationships don't have to be marriage. They don't have to be permanent. I'm in a relationship with somebody And then the government identifies that as a family. And they can even receive benefits from the government without ever even having the commitment of marriage. And so family is changing. Our morals in America were traditionally based upon the Bible. But they were not only based upon the Bible. Our previous generations believed that virtue... Living a righteous life was necessary for society to function well. I mean, after all, if you're stealing from your employer, then you're not going to function well. If, if the country's given over to drunkenness and the highest percentage of people are, are, are intoxicated or on drugs, it affects the whole society. Think of how much money we're spending as a society because of just the abuse of alcohol and, and drug use in the country. And that's because of a change in values. We don't see that a holy life is not only commanded of God, it's good for the entire community. And so again, the moral code today according to Mr. Barnett, has been, is now being based upon people's personal choice of right and wrong. And people simply say, I don't think that's wrong. I'll do that. I don't think that's right, so I won't do that. And we kind of make up our own moral code as we go along. See, values have changed. 
The whole idea of the worship of celebrities comes out of this idea that you don't have to be virtuous. The heroes of so much of America this morning are people who have the morals and the values of a goat. But because there's some celebrity in sports or in music or in Hollywood or something, people are dazzled by them. And so our role models even have changed. The type of people that we emulate have changed because of a change of values. Faith is a value, and our faith has always been based upon the Bible. And the faith has always been centered in the church, not in individuals. The corporate body that Christ established. The church was the place that embodied the values of the Christian faith. It passed down traditions for 2,100 years. Today, our culture is against anything traditional. If it's old, it's no good. If it's new, it's, 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 it's good. It's improved. And we're finding out that isn't working very well for us. Today, instead of going to the church, people tailor-make their own faith. I'll take a little piece of the Baptist and a little piece of the Buddhist, and I'll have my own belief. Back to the self-focused world. A value for the past has been a sense of community that people felt a responsibility to contribute to what we call the public good. And so people were active in the institutions that held society together and impacted it positively. Church, school, parents were active in their, school, in their school's lives. Not so much today. Local government, civic activities. But now the focus, according to Mr. Barna, I'm quoting Barna, the focus has become, I don't care much about the community. Everybody can take care of themselves. And the focus becomes on self, on personal comfort, on convenience. And Barna pointed out an unwillingness to make sacrifices. And of course, there's the impact of technology that supposedly brought us together with all the communication devices. And I thank God for the technology and the medical field and in so many areas. But just look around at people. And they are desensitized. I mean, when you see, when you hear about a thousand murders a day, what's one more? And we isolate ourselves. Instead of talking, we are texting. The girl said to her mother, oh, mom, we've grown so much closer since you learned to text. Think of that. And the conclusion, here's Barna's conclusion in his book, over 75% of adults concur that the morals and values of America are in rapid decline. 75% of us in the country agree on one thing. That's probably only 75% point of agreement in America today. We agree that America's off track. And we agree that the values and morals that made us are slipping very rapidly. So point three, and lastly, and a little bit more positive. So what does this mean for the church today, operating in this culture? We've always operated as an institution that Bible-based values. 
And we celebrated service and sacrifice and giving ourselves and being a part of something bigger than ourselves. And suddenly now we're in this world that values self, where people take selfies, where they used to take pictures of others. Hmm. What does this mean for the church? It means, number one, that the values of our culture are in conflict with the values of our faith. The values of the world around us are in absolute conflict with the values of the Christian faith. And a growing tension and hostility exists between Christianity and the secular world. For example, the secular world has thrown off all sexual restraint. And so today, you can go, uh, I can go in a women, women's restroom. I can go in a women's locker room. I can go anywhere I want to go if I get up this morning and determine I'm a woman. That's all I got to do. I got to self-identify as a woman. And by the way, I'm doing that through government policy. Is that really freedom or is that insanity? Has there ever been a civilized place on the earth where a man, a man could wake up and say, I'm a woman today, I'll go over here to Target and I can walk into the, women, into the women's restaurant? By the way, I won't be walking into Target ever again. But what we need to remember is that a hostile culture, a hostile culture has been the norm for most people in the world throughout all of history. Persecution and hostility to Christianity is new in the United States. But it's been like that forever. Number two, the mission, though, hasn't changed. And so from the time we started the Florence Baptist Temple out there 46 years ago, we've had one consistent mission, and that's to carry out the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. Now we're, I see the difference in our congregation. In the new people coming in, and I love you, but I have to tell you the truth, I need to raise the level of commitment around here because you are not showing the commitment of the people who started this church. You're not willing to roll up your sleeves like they did. We need to regain the spirit of what they called the one-way missionaries. You ever heard about the one-way missionaries? They were a group of Scottish people who a revival broke out in Scotland, and they gave their life to the Lord for missionary service. They were led by a man named A.W. Milne, M-I-L-N-E. And they didn't have a lot to start with. They were not wealthy people. And they got ready to go to the New Hebrides Islands out in the Pacific, way out between Hawaii and Australia. And A.W. Milne at the time was probably in his 40s or 50s. And a little handful of them booked passage on a ship. And they packed their few worldly belongings in a casket. 
Each of them bought his coffin in Scotland and packed everything they owned in those coffins, boarded that ship, waving goodbye to their loved ones on on the shore who they knew they would never see again. They would not be coming home in those days. It was a six-month trip. And they went out there, and A.W. Milne served the Lord for 35 years in the New Hebrides Islands. Those islands at that time were inhabited by headhunters and cannibals. A.W. Milne's motto was, there is no greater privilege than to sacrifice for my Savior. There is no greater privilege than for me to be able to sacrifice for my Savior. And he died after 35 years. And the natives wrote the epitaph for his gravestone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Because there's no greater value than to sacrifice for my Savior. And the last thing, we, our vision can't just be on what we do, programs and people. But going forward, our vision has to be on what we are. I'm almost through, but I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I hope every Bible from this congregation will have a mark on this verse. And you'll be able to find it often. Because I believe we're going to need it. We're going to return to it often in the future. And Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 15. That you may be blameless and harmless. That's people of real godly character. The sons of God, without rebuke, there's nothing in your life that people can criticize you about. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, ah, America, crooked and perverted, but among them that we shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice when Christ comes, that I have not run my, lot, my race in vain, or uh, neither labored in vain. Paul said, I want you to remember, Philippians, you live in this dark, hostile world. And I want you to remember, it's not what you do only. It's what you are. This old world, this culture of today, destined Desperately, 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 folks, needs to see the reality of a godly life and righteous character. Our heads are bowed. My Savior, I'm happy at last.